0: Well, good morning. Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be going through verses 5 through 11. And uh, many of you guys probably know this section very well. Uh, this is a passage many people memorize by heart. Uh, it's a passage that's been uh, scholars over time have looked at, debated on. Um, this section, I'll just say up in front, uh, has led to many... Uh, false teachings about who Jesus is. It's led to many uh, wrong thoughts about who God is. Yeah, it's led to terrible, terrible uh, things about the, who, the, what the Trinity is. It, it's, it's really had a lot of issues uh, that's taken people through false teaching uh, in the sense that they've twisted what's said. Um, and it's been studied, like I said, through a theological standpoint, but really that's not the reason we're here today. We're not here to gain head knowledge. We're not here to gain uh, you know, theological uh, insight to it, We're here because of what Paul intended to write to them for. Paul was writing to the Philippian believers for the purpose, really for two things. He wrote to them uh, just two verses before this, telling them that they had a problem with two things. First thing was selfishness, and the second thing was pride. And he was telling them to avoid those two things and instead be humble, Be humble before the Lord. Be humble before others. And we read about this in verses 3 and 4, right before this passage. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not look out for only his own interests, but also the interests of others. And Paul, he's been writing this uh, to remind them, stop thinking about yourself. Stop being so full of your own ideas, your own thinkings. Stop uh, only being consumed with your own interests. Think about those around you. Think about your brother and your sister in Christ and their needs rather than just your own. But this is something that really doesn't come naturally to us as humans. We tend to have a, selfish, a selfishness to us. Um, and it's seen from children all the way up to adults. You have, you know, just kids, you give them uh, a toy and you say, okay, now, now Timmy, you share with Kelly and he says, no, it's mine, mine, you know, or, or Kelly has a toy, and, and it looks pretty appealing to him, and she goes over and snatches it, oh, it's mine now, and it's this constant selfishness that you have, or, you know, with kids, you have a conversation that's happening with all the grown-ups, and they feel like they're being neglected, and they feel like they're not getting the attention they need, and so they start crying, or they start, shouting or they start making really loud noises so that they get your attention because they need to have that attention by you they need to be the center of the attention at that moment and they'll throw tantrums if they don't and it's the selfishness that we see even in little kids and it doesn't just stop with little kids it goes on to older people too we see uh... i mean every day you go on the road you think uh... you think you need to merge over and you think that you know i really need to make this exit but the other person next to you Puts up the sign of no trespassing and he scoots up closer and closer so that you can't get in. And it's the selfishness that he owns the lane. He he won't let you get over. Uh, You also have people, you know, maybe you've done a million favors for them. Maybe you've picked up all these extra shifts for them or you've gone out of your way one day just to do something for them. And the one time you need a favor from them, they go, you know, this is my one day to relax. I I don't have anything planned, but it's just uh, this is me day. I can't be bothered with anything else. It's my day. I'm sorry. Hopefully you can find someone else to switch for you. And it's this selfishness that we see. People tend to have a selfish, selfishness to them. And that's one thing that the, uh, Flip, the Philippians were dealing with, so that's why Paul says, do not do anything out of selfish ambitions. He also talked about conceit or pride. Uh, when, when C.S. Lewis was uh, asked to give a comment on the topic of pride, he said, We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And that's the the truth of it. I mean, everyone, the idea of pride is one-upping one person. It's, uh, you know, you have a house, well, I have a house with a pool. You have a car, well, my car drives itself. Uh, you're the, the supervisor of that floor, well, I'm the CEO, you know. <laughs> it's just the sense of I am better than you in one step or another. Uh, and, and they're proud to be better. You think of professional athletes, you have, you know, they make more in a year than any of us will ever make in our lifetime. And yet, they look and say, $10 million, I deserve 15 million, I'm better than that person. And every person on the team, you'll see, even in the, uh, the news, right around the time the season ends they renegotiate their contracts and they have this debate of how great they are and they'll compare that player got that and so I deserve this that player got that so I deserve even more than that and it's this continual I'm better than that person I am greater than them and it's this pride that they have it's a selfish attitude really because it affects the whole team and their what they can give to the other players but it doesn't just happen this selfishness this pride doesn't just happen outside in the world it happens even in a church as we know it did in the church of philippi Uh, that's why paul's writing to them you know people in a church can look at their position that they have and say you know what look at me look at what i'm doing for the lord look where the lord has placed me look at my position i am the elder of the church i am a deacon i am a song leader i i I do children's ministry whatever it may be and they look at it and say wow look where i am (laughs) where are you at you know what do you do for the lord Um, And maybe they don't verbally say that, but they may have this idea in their mind of this mentality that somehow they are better than the other members in the church. Uh, People desire an honored position. They want to be front and center. Oftentimes people won't take a position because I don't want to be behind the scenes. I don't want to be somebody who's not noticed. I want a recognition, a a place where people can see uh, what I do. They wouldn't take on a position maybe where it's cleaning up or locking up, or they wouldn't take a position where, you know, no one will ever notice whether they're there or not. And whatever the case may be, pride can have a detrimental effect on the church, inside the church or outside the church. And so Paul is telling the Philippian believers, stop allowing pride to interfere with what you do. Stop thinking highly of yourself. Stop thinking that you're somehow better than the other person next to you. You're not. And you, and you might think to yourself as I've been talking that, well, I have a problem with pride. I, I have issues. I, I am, have a tendency to be proud. And, you know, it's one thing for you to say, don't be proud and to not be this way, but I have an issue. I need someone to be an example for me. I need an example to look for, to model what humility would look like. And if that's where you're at, then we're in a great place because we have (laughs) the ultimate example of humility. Jesus Christ is our example of humility. And uh, we'll we'll dive into the passage, but it's incredible to look uh, as we go through here. We'll just see, uh, as every phrase goes on, you'll see him just stoop lower and lower and lower and lower into humility, looking at how much he was willing to do, how low he was able to stoop. And I hope you don't forget this, that it was all done for us. He did it out of love for us, thinking of us. So, Philippians 2, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus uh, is our example of humility. It says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's never forget the, the, the point of this passage. Really, it's interesting. This is one of the few passages where you'll see the takeaway said at, at the very beginning. This is, this is the lesson that we need to learn right here. As imitators of Christ, as ones who are followers of Him, we are to follow in His example. And this passage, like I said, just shows us every level of how deep He went into humility. And more than just looking at this passage and say, wow, that's a lovely passage of what Jesus did. Wow, it really warms my heart. Rather, it should be, this is a command for us to follow. It says, let this mind be in you. Have the mindset that Christ also had of humility. Humble yourself as Christ showed it, and he demonstrated in humility. So, make the choice. Have a humble mindset. And uh, now that we, Christ is, we've been told to, to follow that mindset that Christ has had, we now look at what was it that Christ did. How did he humble himself? Verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, So we read that uh, Jesus Christ being in the form of God, uh, Jesus Christ, he's existed from all eternity. He has been God, he was God, he is God, and forever will be God. And the idea here is not so much uh, that he appeared to look like God or that he somehow had this similar image, but rather that he is God. He was fully God in every possible aspect of the meaning, he was God. And the word for form here is is the word morphe in the Greek. And and really what it means is that Jesus possessed the very nature of God, his attributes, his character traits. He was and is and always will be God. And we understand now that Jesus is God. So now we'll look at what he did. It says that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And it's kind of a poor translation there, but it would really read that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or something to be uh, held on to or to cling to. And it's really important at this point that we kind of distinguish something because this is where you can lead into to wrong thinking. So when we're talking about the person of who Jesus is, he is, he was, and he always will be God. He is not a lesser member. He never became less than God. He never will be. He always will be God. He's not a lesser member of the Trinity. He is an equal member. And it's impossible for God to ever become anything less, or Jesus to become anything less than God Himself. However, it is possible, though, for Him, for a temporary time, to let His position of equality with God. It's possible for Him to positionally become less. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You think about the way the world was. The world from the very beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ was with the Father forever in heaven, enjoying the splendors of heaven, the joys, everything that came along with it. And he could have held on to that position. He could have grasped onto that position and said, you know what? I don't want to do that. He could have stayed in heaven. And he had every right to. But Jesus, knowing his position in heaven, knowing everything that he would have to do in order to provide a way for salvation, it says that he did not consider equality with God as something to grasp or to hold on to. He, didn't, he was willing to let go of his position in heaven for a time in order to make a way for sinners to have a way to come to know him, for the sinners to have a way to have forgiveness of their sins. And so he temporarily, relinquished this position that he had with God the Father in order to redeem the human race. And in relinquishing this position, he endured horrible treatment. He endured uh, the mocking, the false accusations, things that we talked about in the the previous meeting, uh, the beatings, the bruising, the pain, and ultimately the death on the cross. Positionally, when Jesus was on earth, God the Father was greater than him. And we know this because we read in John 14, 12, where it says, when Jesus is talking to his disciples that, uh, about the idea of going back to be in, the, in heaven with the Father, it says, You have heard me say, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And if you think about it, at that moment, the Father was greater than he. The Father was in heaven positionally enjoying heaven. Whereas the Son had come all the way down to this world, broken mankind, to save and redeem this race. So positionally, they were different. However, person-wise, they were equal. He still was God, still always is God. That's never changed. But once Jesus would then rise and ascend back to heaven, the position would then be equal. He would again become positionally equal with the Father. If this is hard to wrap your mind around. I will try and uh, give you an example. Let's say that you have a homeless man, who, uh, you know, he's been begging on the streets for years and years and years, and he's down to his last few dollars, and this year he thinks, you know what, I'm gonna make it. I am gonna, I'm gonna really just put all the last, last few dollars I have into the mega millions, and let's see if I can win this time. And so he puts in, he buys all the tickets that he can afford, And he buys it, and sure enough, he comes out and he wins $100 million. He becomes one of the wealthiest people that, you know, are in that entire town. He's a super rich man now. And you would think, uh, and you know, he starts living lavishly. He has the comforts of what life is like now. Uh, He has the nice cars. He has a nice home. Positionally, this man has gone from rags to riches. This man has gone from... Uh, basically Section 8 housing to the highest possible social class you can have, positionally. But as far as that person, that person is still a sinner. The very core, the very nature of that person is still the same. He's a person who maybe has the same quirks he had before. He still has the same personality, more or less. He's still the same man. However, positionally, he's really gone from rags to riches. In a similar way, as we look at the Lord... His very nature stays the same. He is, he always will be God. He keeps all the attributes of God. However, he didn't go from rags to riches. He went from riches to rags. We read in 2 Corinthians 8 9, it says that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus did the total opposite of what we just read about there. Not only was Jesus rich, Jesus created the world and all the wealth in it. He created the bronze, the silver, the gold, the platinum. He created the very money, the very paper we used to print our money on. Everything that we have in this world, he possessed, he owned. He was wealthy, beyond wealthy. He owned it all. And yet, he left that position with God and became poor for our sakes so that we, we might become rich. He was thinking about us so that we might have the eternal blessing of knowing him of coming to know him and and have our sins forgiven and spend eternity with him jesus christ left all that for you and for me in verse 7 it says but he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men the word for no reputation really means to empty And it would be better translated to say, but he emptied himself. And when we look at this, the first logical question that comes to mind is, well, what did he empty himself of? In order to answer this question, again, we have to be extremely careful. Uh, This is where, again, a lot of false teaching will come into play. But let's talk, first of all, the best way to answer this, I think, is to talk about what he did not empty himself of. First and foremost, he did not empty himself of his deity. Again, he is, he was, and always will be God. one of the strongest verses that speak on this is in, sec, is in Colossians 2.9, where it says, For in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of the Godhead eternally dwells in Christ, which includes even when He was here on earth as a man. As a man, Jesus was fully God, and He never emptied Himself of His deity. He is, He was, and always will be God. Another thing that he uh, didn't give up was his attributes as God. He didn't give up his all-knowingness or his omniscience. He didn't give up his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence. And he didn't give up his sinless, holy perfection. Those are all things that he had still with him. And I want to look through some of those because some people would say that he didn't have those things, but clearly in the Bible we see so obviously that he does. First thing, his power to be all-knowing. We see it in a time where Jesus forgave the sins of a paralytic man, where Jesus uh, said before he healed them that your sins are forgiven you. And the scribe said, this man blasphemes. And, but it reads in Matthew 9, 4, it says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus knew before they even said what was on their mind already. He, could, he already read it. I mean, we can barely even read if somebody's happy or sad one day. Yet Jesus knew the very thoughts of these people, and they knew that their thoughts were evil. Great insight to know that Jesus Christ was still all-knowing. Another thing that he was, and he kept, was his all-powerfulness, his ability to do anything. Uh, and as I was looking through some of the miracles that Jesus did to just try and categorize them, it was so, uh, there were so many that it, it became overwhelming. So this is just a brief summary of just showing just the all-powerfulness that Jesus still possessed. Uh, I mean, there's so many things that John uh, 21, 25 wrote, and there are so, also many other things that Jesus did that if they were written one by one, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. And it's true. I mean, there's just so much to say. But If I were to summarize it, I would say that he still had the power over sickness, and we see this displayed over him healing the ten leprous men, over healing Peter's mother-in-law, over healing the woman who had that continuous bleed, over healing the man who had swelling all throughout his body, over healing the servant's ear as it was cut off after he was arrested, over healing the man who had that withered hand, how he opened the eyes of the blind how he opened the ears of the death, he caused the paralyzed man to walk again after he forgave him of his sin. He caused those who could not speak to speak again. And this was, if this wasn't even enough proof, he even raised Lazarus from the dead. And it wasn't just Lazarus, it was the, the widow of Nain's son, it was Jairus' daughter, and he himself also rose from the dead. Incredible acts to show that God is all-powerful over the sick. But it wasn't just over the sick, he had power over nature itself. Think about the times where Jesus was in the boat. He fell fast asleep. And his disciples came to him and they awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful? O oh, you of little faith. And then he arose and it says he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. I mean, can you imagine like going out and on a windy day and having somebody say, stop, be calm. It wouldn't change for us. It's going to be still just as windy. It might blow harder at our face. And yet, Jesus had the control and the power over the winds and the seas to command it. And there was a great calm, not just it died down slowly, a great calm over all of it. And so the men rightfully so marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey Him? That's the Lord Jesus. It has to be God. Only God could have those power. And even the disciples noticed and recognized that. Who else could this be? that even the winds and the sea obey him. Later, he, he defies physics, where he walks on water, has the ability to do that. Uh, we see elsewhere where he controls even where fish travel. We see that the, the disciples have been, you know, casting their nets all night tirelessly. They've caught nothing. And the Lord says, cast down your net one more time. And when they cast their net again, the Lord controls the amount of fish that they, they pick up. And as they pick up, their nets start breaking, and they bring them over into the boat, and the boat starts sinking. So they bring a second boat, and the second boat starts sinking as they go to shore. Incredible acts in how God controlled nature, how He allowed a miraculous thing to happen because He is all powerful. Uh, There was also not just the power over nature and over sickness, but He had power over unclean spirits. Think about the countless demons and spirits He's cast out from men and from women. And it really shows that he has power over demons. He has power and authority over them. He has absolute control. And they are subject to him. I also thought of the power that he had to multiply and to change food. Uh, we see that he turned water into wine. You think, even today, if people had that ability, you know, they would be making a fortune. You, you couldn't even... People try as quickly as they can to produce wine and to make it faster and to taste just as good. But the Lord was able to do it that very day to turn it water to wine and it tasted like it had fermented for years. It tasted great. And that's something that you can't reproduce. It's impossible. But he had the power over altering that. And besides that, he was able to feed 5,000 men and women and children with five loaves and two fish. And somehow there was 12 baskets left over. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. It was then 4,000 men plus women and children. And somehow there was seven baskets left over. Incredible acts that showed that God was all-powerful. And we see He's all-powerful, all-knowing. And now the most important thing, I think, the fact that He was holy, He was sinless, and He was perfect. And that stayed with Him the whole time. Think about the times when Satan took Him to the wilderness and tried to tempt Him and to get him to uh, disobey the Father and to do his own will. And yet, multiple times when Satan tried, each and every time the Lord rebuked him and quoted, again, Scripture at him. Hebrews even, even comments on this idea. In, verse, in uh, Hebrews four fifteen. it says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin." There's no one else you can say who's done that, who's been tempted in every single aspect of life and yet was perfect, yet was sinless, yet did not give in to that temptation. Nobody else but God Himself could have the power to be fully God and be perfect in every way. But the verse we read says that the Lord emptied Himself. And so we have this this question now in our mind, He didn't empty himself of his deity. He didn't empty himself of his all-knowingness, his all-powerfulness, his perfection. So what did he empty himself of? And the answer is that he emptied himself of his positional equality with God. And instead, he availed himself in human flesh. Before Jesus was on this earth, like I said, he was in heaven with God. He was receiving the glory due to his name even before the world existed. It says, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He emptied himself by taking on human flesh. He didn't lay aside his deity. Instead, he temporarily laid his place in heaven with the Father. And which is why Jesus, we read him praying to the Father in John 17. While he's on earth, he prays, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory of which I had with you before the world was. He's temporarily laid aside that glory, that position with the Father. And now he's praying to the Father, Lord, restore that glory that I once had with you. Restore me to that position that I once had. And, the, and ultimately the Father does. But that's what he laid aside. He laid aside that position. And if that wasn't humbling enough that he left that glory behind, and He took on human flesh, it says that He took the form of a bondservant. Think about that. The Son of God coming to earth not, uh, not, to, be, uh, not to be served, but rather to be a servant to those. If you were to summarize the, the purpose of why Jesus came to this earth, it would be found in Mark 10, where it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. That was his purpose. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And you would think that he would come to be served, but that wasn't his goal. He came to serve, and not only that, but also to serve as a bondservant and also to give his life for them. We see uh, this servanthood displayed through different different passages in, in the Bible, but especially through when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples. I honestly could not think of a more disgusting job. Um, I, I've seen the salon people as they clean and do pedicures for people, and they stoop down to this low position on this little chair, and they're scrubbing away, and it's just so gross. You have people who have had sweaty feet. They're, most people are very filthy, their feet. Um, and they decide to take that position and scrub it and clean it off, and, and they really get in there and just you know, start cleaning up. And those people, for the most part, just wear socks and shoes. So it's pretty relatively clean feet, if you would. But think about Yosemite and going there and walking around with your sandals and picking up feet, and then you go in the water and then you get out and then it starts caking on your feet and it starts looking like that. It's disgusting feet. And the disciples probably were walking around with sandals and their feet probably looked similar to that. Disgusting. They're just walking around in dirt. And the Lord stooped down to that level and took a towel and a basin and was washing their feet. It's a disgusting, gross task, but he did that. He took on that role. It was a servant role, and yet that was the role he wanted to take on himself. It's a very, very humbling job. It's just amazing to see that humility that he took on himself. And so now we think back to the church of Philippi. There were contentions among them. There were people who were not considering others above themselves. And so Paul, here, he's given them this example of Christ. Here is Christ leaving behind his position in heaven, leaving behind the glory that he had there. He took on being a man and came to this earth as a servant. That's what the Lord did for you. And now you guys are having issues with thinking that somehow you're better than others. Somehow that... You know, your pride is getting in the way of things. Have the mind that Christ had. It's the mind of humility, the mind of selflessness. It's the mind of thinking about others. I mean, you think about if if everyone here, everyone in the world for that matter, had the mind of Christ, had a mind of humility, how much different would it be? You would have people all the time wanting, I'll take the lowly place. I'll, take, uh, I'll make the sacrifice. I'll do that for you. Um, you'll have people taking servant's role. You'd even have people who would be willing to lay down their lives for their brother and sister in Christ. Having that attitude, having that mindset would effectively take away any disagreement, any contentions among the church. Everybody would think of each other higher than others. And you'd effectively eliminate any issues which is why Paul's brought up that idea to the church of Philippi. Have that mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 says, And coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. And again, just another level that he stoops down to in humility. What's more than the fact that he left behind his glory, more than the fact that he left behind And was willing to become a servant was the fact that he became a man. He took on being fully human, and yet at the same time he was fully God. But he didn't come in the appearance of an angelic being or something as superior to other people. He was just like you and me. He was found in the appearance of man. He experienced growing up from infancy. He experienced the joys of life. He experienced the sorrows, the anguish. He cried, he was tired, he hungered, all these things showing that he was fully human and yet still fully God. It's really hard for our our minds to wrap around, but it's true. Jesus Christ was fully man and yet fully God still. Verse 8, the second part of it says that he humbled himself and became obedient. Even or ob- obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Just take a second to think about that. Jesus himself humbled. He showed, and how did he show this humility? He showed it by taking on the form of a man and not a more glorious image. And he was born humbly, not into a royal city. He didn't come to the capital city, he didn't come to some palace. He was born in the most obscure town. And in the, there was really nothing noteworthy of that town, but. It was a small place, and even in that city, they didn't even have room for him, so he had to be born in a barn, in a manger, because they didn't have space for him, for the Lord. (laughs) He was born humbly into a family that was not well off. This was a carpenter and and his wife. They weren't rich. They they weren't people of royalty, and yet he was born into this humble, poverty-stricken family. And he was submissive to his parents, Think about uh, the fact that he had his companions, his friends. They were not the prestigious people, they were not the, the kings and, and the high priests of the time. It was, it was tax collectors. It was people who were uh, fishermen, simple men, people who really weren't thought of as much at the time. And it was so bad that people even mocked him for the people he associated with. They said he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. The people he hung out with were not prestigious people. And yet that's who the Lord spent his time with. He spent his time appealing to the sick, the poor, the needy, the demon-possessed. He wanted to spend his time investing in their lives. He showed humility through enduring temptation, experiencing what it's like to hunger, to thirst, to have sorrow, to fatigue. He showed his humility by being homeless. it talks about Foxes, the very animals of the earth, the foxes had holes, the birds had nests. Those, the, the the non-essentials that you would think about in life, had places to stay. And yet the Lord didn't even have a place to rest his head. I mean, if I ever plan a trip anywhere, I'm always going to make sure that my living, my, uh, my my place to stay is always thought of. And yet the Lord didn't even have that. He didn't even have his basic necessities of a place to stay. The animals had better than him. But Jesus humbled himself, and it says that he became obedient even to the point of death. There was no limit at how far Jesus was going to go to humble himself for us. And can you imagine (laughs) the the creator of the universe, the maker, humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross? Uh, Crucifixion was the most shameful of all deaths there were. This was reserved for the scum of the earth. It was for criminals, for murderers, reserved for the lowest of all people. Deuteronomy tells us that the person who is hanged on a tree is accursed by God. Galatians tells us that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus humbled himself to the point where he even died a criminal's death. To the point where he would accept the agony and the pain that would become associated with that death. He endured the shame, the mocking, the public humiliation. He didn't decide to die in a remote area. He didn't decide to die in a place where it was private, secluded. He died publicly in front of everyone. So all could see what he was doing, what he was enduring. And ultimately, he was enduring it for them, for their sakes. So that they could see in the midst of his suffering, he was providing a way of salvation to the entire world. That's incredible humility. To go from heaven with the Father, stoop all the way down to die on the cross for us. And it wasn't even for crimes he committed, because he was perfect. It was for our crimes. That's some humility. And if Jesus can do that for us, if God was willing to stoop that low for us, to humble himself and become obedient even to the point of death, then how can we not also humble ourselves? How can we not also have the mind that Christ had? How can we not esteem others as better than ourselves? How can we not put our pride aside and say, you know what, forget my selfish thoughts, my pride. How can I look out for the interests of others? What Jesus did is infinitely greater than anything we can ever do in humility. We are here. (laughs) Jesus was up here and he humbled himself all the way down to here. There is nothing that we could do that would even come close to the humility that Jesus showed and so Paul is telling the church of Philippi and, and really to us as well that if Jesus demonstrated this kind of humility then we also must follow in that same mindset. Obeying and following according to his incredible example. Verse 9 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And here we, we see this interesting switch. Uh, of, we've been talking about the humility that Christ has endured. And now it switches to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And we've just been seeing him stoop lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And now we see that even though he wasn't seeking a name for himself, he didn't come to be served. He didn't come to be honored. He Rather, he came to give his life for us. But in light of what he's done, in light of what Jesus has done in humbling himself, God the Father now, says that He has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Charles Spurgeon, uh, in thinking about this section, said, "Now let's just pause over the thought that Christ did not crown himself, but the Father crowned him, that he did not elevate himself to a throne of majesty, but the Father lifted him there and placed him on his throne. And it's true. The Father has elevated him to this position and given him a name which is above every name. I, I looked at um, some of the greatest names that I've ever lived, and uh, there was, I think, about 100 living and dead of the greatest people ever. And these were the top 12, <clears throat> which it's debatable in your mind if you want to say these are the greatest people of all time, but I'll just list them. It, it was, in this order, Muhammad, Gandhi, Confucius, Mother Teresa, Aristotle, Einstein, Columbus, Caesar, Alexander the Great, George Washington, Thomas Edison, Isaac Newton, and the list went on for a hundred names of the greatest people that ever existed. And sure, these people did contribute a lot. Some of these people, you know, conquered nations, people discovered lands. Some of these people, you know, invented electricity. They uh, created a way of, you know, defining some of the laws of gravity and physics, They made some important contributions to us as today, but... And and the reason why these people are considered great is because they've done something that's better than the average Joe. They're better than... I, I didn't come up with those ideas. I didn't come up with discovering America. I didn't, you know, I didn't figure out how the light bulb works. These people did. So they're considered greater than us. But even if you lumped all the great names together, all the hundred great names that people say, even if you put them in one thing, the name of Jesus would still be greater and far more far more powerful than any of those names combined. Jesus has a name which is above every name there is. There is no name you will ever find that is greater than the name of Jesus. All the names are inferior to that name. And God the Father has given him that name. And really the application, if you're looking for it in this section, is really... Would be best described in James 4:10, where it says, "Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up." He's teaching us that in order to be exalted, we must first humble ourselves before the Lord, and in due time, He will lift us up. It's this idea that humility comes before exaltation. And uh, the Lord teaches us elsewhere in Luke 14. He tells them this this passage. There's a a dinner table, and they're all kind of choosing the best seats. They're finding which seats are the best ones. And so he tells them this parable. He told the parable to those who were invited when they had noticed how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give this place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And what Jesus is telling us is take the lowly position. Don't think about yourself as somehow, I deserve this spot. This is my claim spot. Because there's a chance that you're probably going to be brought lower into a position where it'll be shameful to you because there's someone more more, uh, higher ranking than you. Um, I I think of uh, times when we used to go on road trips as a family and the prized possession, I think, of any road trip was shotgun. I'll call shotgun and and that was the passenger seat, and you would take that position, and say, okay, cool, we're gonna enjoy the ride. It's the most comfortable seat. It has the most leg room. You get the AC right next to you. You get a rail down the window even, and you know, lo and behold, you call a shotgun, but you know, here, here comes grandpa, and grandpa now, you know, he, he's not super easy at getting in the car, and he's gonna take that position. He, he is a lot higher than I am. You know, I have a lot more respect for him, and so it's all right, David. It's grandpa's seat, get out of the car. So you unbuckle the seat and, you know, shamefully walk to the back of the car. And sure enough, the only seat left is the back middle seat. And, and, uh, you know, of course, there's baggages right there. So your legs are even more crunched up sitting there. And it's a shame. It's this, you know, you wanted to give yourself the highest position and yet you were humbled. And uh, that's the idea that the Lord is trying to teach us here, is that if we're truly humble before God... There will be no other direction in which we can go. We will be so low that the only possible direction is to go upward. It's better to, take, uh, it's better to advance to a place of honor than to cling to this high position and to be humble. Jesus was our example of humility. He humbled himself, and in turn, God exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. And likewise, we must follow in that example of humility. In the, in the final two verses, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Not only has Jesus, uh, not only has the Father exalted him and given a name which is above every name, He has made it so that one day there will be universal acknowledgment that Jesus Christ is Lord. And um, this includes every single person that's ever lived, every person who is currently living, people in heaven, people on the earth, people under the earth. It's all inclusive. Universally, people will recognize and bow before the Lord and confess Him as Lord and physically bow before Him. And, I mean, just think think about that. People who are who have rejected Jesus, people who have said there is no such thing as a God, people who say that's just a fairy tale to give hope to people will one day confess that I have made the worst mistake of my life and they will come before the Lord and I don't believe that it will just be simply bowing before him like that. I believe that with fear and trembling would come across people. Just think about the times when people have just seen a glimpse of the Lord's backside and how Moses' face shone and there was so much that the the people uh, had him wear a veil over it. And it was just a reflection of what he saw. And yet to people to see the Lord and to realize with terror that I have chosen the horrible, the most horrible choice you could ever make to reject the Lord and his gift of salvation. And they will come and they will bow before him showing complete submission, showing complete uh, honor to him. Think of people like Richard Dawkins, probably the well, 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 probably one of the well, most well-known atheists that ever lived. He wrote the book called The God Delusion. And he will one day realize that he himself was delusional. He was fooled into believing Satan's lie. He is fooled into believing that there was no God. He will one day confess Jesus as Lord and will bow before him. Stephen Hawking, a person who said that there's no possibility that there was a God, there's no possibility of a creator, will one day bow before the Lord and confess Him as Lord. That's going to be an incredible sight to see. Think about all the coworkers, the family members, the friends you knew, who you've preached to and you've said, you know what? One day you're going to have to give an account before the Lord. One day you need to get things right. And who have rejected the Lord time and time again, they will one day come before the Lord and bow and confess Him as Lord. And it doesn't mean that everybody who's bowing before the Lord, everyone confessing as Lord, is saved. It will be basically people who are saved will willingly bow the knee before the Lord and confess Him as Lord because they know that's His rightful place. But those who are not saved with fear and trembling will bow before Him knowing that they have been such a fool in this life, that they have made the worst decision they could have ever possibly made. That will be some day to see everyone, great and small, rich and poor, bowing before Him and confessing Him as Lord. And if you're looking at what Jesus did this morning, if you're looking at uh, the humility that he showed for you and the great depths that he did to save your soul, and you haven't come to know the Lord, I have to ask you, why not? What is holding you back from trusting the Lord as your Savior? He has done everything for you. All you have to do is simply confess that you are a sinner, deserving of hell, and that Jesus Christ and His payment on the cross was sufficient for your sins, there's nothing else you can do but simply put your trust in Him and confess Him as Lord because we know that whether you confess Him in this life or you don't, you will one day confess Him as Lord and you will bow before Him. Make the choice to confess Him in this life as Lord. Make the choice to bow the knee before Him and trust Him because all will one day bow before Him. Before we end, we'd be missing the point if we uh, didn't go back to the original purpose and why Paul wrote this. And he included this to correct the selfishness. He wrote this to correct the prideful thinking of the Philippian church. And the cure for selfish thoughts, the cure for this prideful behavior, again, is having the mind of Christ. And so we have this example of Jesus and his humility, the lengths that he went to humble himself for you, and in light of what he did, we also ought to humble ourselves. We ought to not do things out of a self-seeking purpose or being puffed up, but rather be consumed with the interest of others, just as Jesus Christ was. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we're just in awe of how humble you were, Lord, how... Lo, you stoop, Lord, to save our souls. Lord, we know without you we would be lost and destined to hell. But Lord, because of what you've done and how you came from heaven and went to that cross for us, Lord, we have hope for the future. We can forever spend eternity with you, Lord. And we look forward to that day where we can bow before you and confess you as Lord, Lord, because you are worthy of that. Lord, you are worthy of it all. And Lord, we pray for anyone here who has not yet trusted you, Lord. If they haven't come to know you, I pray that, Lord, they would make the decision to bow before you today and confess you as Lord. Lord Jesus, I just pray that we would work on ourselves being humble before you, Lord. I pray that we would continually remind ourselves that you were humble, Lord, and therefore we ought to also have that mind which was in you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us each and every day to be more and more like you and have the mind of Christ. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.